0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. Verso just launched a new subscription service for readers to get ebooks and discounts every month. When you become a member of the Verso Book Club, you receive all of Verso's new e-books every month, as well as one or more new books in the mail, plus 50% off all Verso books as long as you're a subscriber. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, all member tiers are now at a discount of 50%. Choose between three membership tiers— the Verso Reader tier is a digital subscription for every new Verso ebook each month. Verso Subscriber for one book sent to you in the mail every month and all Verso ebooks. And Verso Comrade for two to three books sent to you by mail every month plus all Verso ebooks. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, each option is 50% off for your first three months. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso will bring you radical voices that challenge capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, debate the future of the planet, and work towards real political change. Sign up for the Verso Book Club at versobooks.com slash book club. That's versobooks.com slash book club. welcome to the dig a podcast from jacobin magazine my name is daniel denver and i'm broadcasting from providence rhode island you can learn a lot about an empire by studying its edges and borderlands in the arctic north america and asia the united states and russia almost touch across the bering strait the region so far away from national centers of power, is, in reality, a critical and complex node in global geopolitics and ecology alike. It is, in fact, a center of power, energy. Ice, water, walruses, foxes, whales, and humans have long metabolized, stored, and transferred energy across vast distances. This region, Beringia, both Russian Chukotka and American Alaska have also been colonized by capital and the state for the extraction of energy for faraway places and to make indigenous people into good Soviet and American subjects. This voracious appetite for power Indifferent to the Earth's reproductive cycles, first overturned indigenous people's relationship to their Arctic environment, and now threatens our future on the planet as a whole. Since the arrival of the Yankee whaling fleet in the mid-19th century, to the turn of the 20th century gold rush into Nome, to the Soviet mines and collective reindeer herds and gulags, to the oil pumped from Prudhoe Bay today, these Russian and American frontiers have fueled empires. Today, they are powering a great unraveling that undercuts the very basis for the human order as we have known it. My interview today is with historian Bathsheba DeMuth about her monumental book, Floating Coast, An Environmental History of the Bering Strait. Before we get started, if you like and listen to The Dig regularly, if you depend on us for sharp, in-depth analysis, for ruthless criticism of all that exists, please support us with a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. Listener contributions are what allows us to make every single one of our episodes free to all, regardless of your ability to pay. So if you can afford to contribute, please take a moment to do so. And if you hook it up with at least $10 a month, we will also send you a left-wing book or books in the mail as a thank you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thank you. Okay, here's Bathsheba DeMuth, who is a professor of history and of environment and society at Brown University, and the author of Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait, out now in paperback from W.W. Norton. She writes regularly on the Arctic and the environment for publications from The Atlantic to Emergence magazine. (laughs) Bethsheba Demuth, welcome to the dig.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Let's start with some basics. What is Beringia? Who are the Beringians? The Inupiaq, the Yupik, and the Chukchi.
1: So Beringia is a name that geographers give to the part of the world that's roughly between the Kolyma River in Russia, or what is now Russia and the Mackenzie River Delta in what is now Canada. So it's the very far northern, northeastern part of Russia and northwestern part of the North American continent. And it's sort of has this title because during the last ice age, it was a single land mass. There was no ocean separating uh, Eurasia from North America. Even in the present, when there is water, ocean water, in between the two continents, there's a great deal of ecological and geological continuity between the two sides of what is now the Bering Strait. And the the people who live around the edges of the the Bering Strait now, the Yupik, the the Chukchi, and the Inupiaq have been there for uh, millennia, at least. Um, There are signs and and their own histories going back for a very, very long time um, along this space. Within my own work, I I kind of take this much larger Beringian space and focus on the region that's really around the Bering Strait itself, um, both on the the Eurasian side and the North American side. And so on the Eurasian side, um, Yupik and Chukchi people have lived there for a very long time. And then on the um, what is now the American side of the Bering Strait, there are Anubyak and Yupik people.
0: Your book is an environmental history where, where humans are protagonists alongside whales, foxes, walruses, sea ice, and the very geological earth itself. And you ask, quote, what power do human ideas have to change their surroundings? And how are people in turn shaped by their habitual relationships with the world? Put another way, what is the nature of history when nature is part of what makes history? How does Beringia answer these questions and how in turn does asking these questions reading humans back into their environment change how we look at history?
1: So part of what drew me to thinking about Beringia, this this sort of far the far reaches of both the Russian and American empires would be one way of thinking about this, is that they are geographically marginal to both the United States and the Soviet Union, in that they are far from the centers of power and major population. And far from the political stories, as they're often told in both countries, to just put it in perspective, the, the Chukchi Peninsula, which is the part of far eastern Russia that I study in this book, is closer to Washington DC than it is to Moscow. So they're, they're not central parts of the ways in which we think about um, the United States for the most part, or the Soviet Union, or the Russia Russian Empire. And what was interesting to me in in the kind of ways in which the United States and Russia come to inhabit these places is that they're geographically distant, but they are also places that don't have a lot of the bases on which modern societies depend. And in particular, they are not places that are very hospitable to agriculture. Um, There's not going to be amber waves of grain, at least in my lifetime, on either the Seward or the Chukchi peninsulas because of where they're situated on the globe. So you don't have that kind of agricultural production, which is undergirds, you know, both Russian and American ideas of how their state's economies are based. And they're also really challenging places for industry. So you can, of course, have industrial production in these places, but they're far away. Machinery tends to malfunction. So they are places that take the kind of givens of modern life and put them under enormous pressure right from the get go. And I was interested, having spent a lot of time living in parts of Beringia since I was in my late adolescence, was really interested in the ways in which ideas about how modern life should be conducted that have these, at least in my interpretation, material bases in agriculture and in industrialization, how they operate when you get into an environment where those givens are not really at hand or extremely challenging at best. And then in this particular part of the world, you have the, to me, added benefit of the fact that one side of the Bering Strait, over the course of the late 19th and 20th century, becomes part of the American Empire. Like it's purchased by the United States and becomes, as Alaska kind of famously proclaims itself, the last frontier. And then on the other side of the Bering Strait, the Russian Empire gives way to the Soviet Union. And so you have this split in a place that is ecologically similar, has the same set of constraints around agriculture and industry, but in the 20th century are divided between the American capitalist way of modernization and imagining people's relationships to society and to the environments that they live in and the Soviet socialist version, just 50 miles away across the Bering Strait. And they're happening within the context of indigenous societies that have enormous continuity. And in some cases are the same on both sides of the straits. So it's kind of sets up this ability to see how it is that these ideas, the Soviet socialism and American style capitalism come to inhabit places that are not, that are not where they're born in some sense. So the ideas have to come to rest in this Arctic environment and what happens kind of when they arrive, how is it that local people Take them up, or reject them, or learn to interact with them in other ways. And what happens to the environment itself when this um, these kind of sets of ideologies show up? And in turn, do the ideologies have to bend when they don't have the kind of the substrate that they're used to operating from agriculturally or in terms of industrial production?
0: Your book reminds me, as someone who's not very familiar with the, with the genre, but it reminds me of, I think, the one thing I've read from. The, the genre, Nature's Metropolis, by William Cronin. But but instead of explaining how a major urban center, in that book's case, Chicago, was built out of the industrialization of this massive rural and agricultural hinterland, you're doing something different but complementary.
1: That's a it's a very high compliment since uh, Bill Cronin's book is remains one of my favorites. But And yes, I think it is something complementary in the sense that in, in some ways, I think of this as a story of... You know, Countries that have settler colonial aspirations, which I think you could say both the United States and the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union do, they have this idea of kind of peopling landscapes, creating a homogenous society from sea to shining sea, how they come to operate in places where that's not going to be operative. So when Cronin is writing about Chicago, he's very much writing about sort of the center of the American settler process and how that turns into an industrial one and how it influences finance and how it transforms forests into you know, cities filled with timber frame houses. When you're kind of at the remove from the agricultural centers as I am, I expected to actually find much sort of less contact with the, with the market, um, with the kind of major centers of production and consumption. And it turns out that actually the Arctic has these longstanding, very deep ties With that kind of production that looked like a version of Cronin's story, I think, um, but a version that doesn't have agriculture at its center.
0: Let's turn to some of the specifics of the history. I guess the best place to start is that foreigners began changing life in Beringia in a big way in 1848 when commercial whalers from New England sailed to the Bering Strait to harpoon, kill, and dismember bowhead whales for their energy rich blubber. Explain the rise of commercial whaling in the Arctic and what role that played in the rise of industrial capitalism, and then more specifically how that quantitative change in the number of whales being killed related to this fundamental qualitative change between how Beringians and foreigners conceived of human and non-human nature. Because you write that they all sought energy from dead whales, but not at all in the same way.
1: So when I started researching this book, I did not think about whales as being part of it at all. I did not think I was going to end up working in the kind of Moby Dick style tall ship whaling part of American history. And it was really only through the kind of constant references in the archives of the Russian Empire. And then also the ways in which indigenous oral traditions talked about whaling that made me realize that the the real start point to the contact that Bryngia has with these outside ideologies starts with whaling. And the reason it starts with whaling is essentially that the, the major U.S. whaling ports, which are in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and Nantucket, and to some degree Providence, and a couple other places on the Massachusetts coast, the, the demand on the eastern seaboard, you know, kind of all the major cities from Boston to New York, Philadelphia, for whale oil to light homes with, and also to use Uh, kind of before petroleum products become common for industrial lubrication. So whale oil was used to keep gears going in textile manufacturing. It's used in certain kinds of wool processing. It has a whole set of uh, kind of early industrial applications, many of which are supplanted by petroleum products by the 1850s. But it's an industry that has has an intense market and a growing market um, along the eastern seaboard as the population grows here. And the whaling technology at the time was such that there were only a few species of whales that these commercial ships could kill. So they could kill sperm whales and right whales um, and a couple of other species and had been hunting them to relative scarcity in the Atlantic, sort of kept pushing out on voyages that were longer and longer. And, And eventually they get around South America. They start working their way north in the Pacific up to Hawaii. They kind of whale out the major whaling grounds around Hawaii and start pushing north and eventually get to the Bering Strait in 1848. And what they find that far north is that the bowhead whales, which are kind of the major uh, big whale species along the Bering Strait are incredibly fatty animals. Um, They're almost 50% fat by volume. So they're, they're kind of a floating stick of butter. So if you're trying to refine oil from an animal, they're about as good as it gets. And they weren't very scared of people. So they were really easy to hunt in the first couple of years. So it was sort of a reprieve for a industry that was really on the ropes because of a lack of animals to kill. They found this kind of amazing bonanza in the far north. Um, And I think one way of thinking of it is this the first oil rush um, in the Arctic is actually for whale oil. And, you know, hunting hundred ton animals from a wooden ship is a dangerous occupation but it is one that people got very good at and were able to hunt bowhead whales in in massive numbers. So they took a population that was probably over 20,000 animals and reduced it to something you know less than 5,000 by you know 50 years of, of killing on. So it, it did not take all that long to push the, the whale population down. And so that's that's the sort of uh, quantitative change you were talking about, is that there are simply fewer bowhead whales. the Bering Sea and in the Chukchi Sea and and Beaufort Seas um, north of the Bering Strait. Particularly for Anubiak and Yupik who had hunted bowhead whales for millennia and for whom bowhead whales were not just critical aspects of sort of maintaining material life because they were food in a place where, you know, there are many options in the Arctic but bowhead whales were an excellent one. They also provide Uh, heating fuel for underground houses before there was you know heating fuel being shipped in and there aren't a lot of trees that far north so actually bowhead bones are an important piece of uh, architectural kind of building material historically and then suddenly of course or not suddenly but over a period of of decades the number of whales really goes down because of this market hunting Um, and in combination with diseases that are brought in by sailors there are kind of a major wave of famines and um, epidemics that start hitting communities along the strait, which are still remembered today. You know, it's, it's not actually that long. Most of these famines happened in the 1880s. So, you know, less than 150 years ago, there's a huge um, kind of contraction in population, Um, communities moving and kind of blending together as they try to find places where there's still game, um, some people start working on the whaling ships because they can work for, for wages or for access to flour and sugar and other kinds of imported goods. So it, it introduces this kind of real moment of tumult um, socially along the Bering Straits because of, essentially because of the the absence of whale energy that just gets siphoned out of the the far northern oceans and brought back to Providence and New Bedford and places like that
0: you write that before foreigners arrived quote beringia was alive with political contest for territory trade slaves revenge and over spiritual malfeasance and you're rejecting the, this notion that indigenous people uh like nature had, had had lived outside history before contact with modernity while also emphasizing that the scale and logic That entered the region in the 19th century, what was marked something very distinct a break that introduced new relationships to nature and nature's energy and new relationships between people and a new conception of time. Quote What made the 1840s distinct in Beringia was thus not change, but new agents of transformation the foreigners who arrived with their proliferation of ideas. What was new about these? Agents and ideas? And, and why were those novelties so consequential and distinct?
1: That's a really good question. And it's a good way of, of framing the question because w- one of the other things, besides writing about whales, that I discovered was that much of this book is really about different conceptions of time and the ways in which those conceptions intermesh or do not intermesh well with the, the landscapes and, and ocean spaces that people are trying to inhabit and make a living from. And I think that the the case of commercial whaling, like many of the cases in this book, it helps kind of clarify how those different ideas of time were operative. That the ways in which, you know, for example, Yupik whale hunters on St. Lawrence Island, um, which sits right in the middle of the Bering Strait, understood their relationship with other people was extremely political, right? There were all sorts of contestations and movements of people Um, And if if you talk to folks there, they can remember specific individuals from, you know, different groups of Chukchi who came over and skimmed boats and, you know, took their relatives. And, you know, it it was not a place of of peace and harmony, right?
0: They even fought foreign incursions as early as the 17th century. Cossacks invaded only to be driven out by Yupik and Chukchi forces in 1742. Right, right. So the Russian bad.
1: Empire loses a war essentially to um, the indigenous peoples along the Bering Strait. So, um, you know, they 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 very much understood that they wanted to kind of maintain borders and keep control over trade routes and you know do all that kind of political work um, and and kept doing so well into the Soviet period. In fact, uh, much to the chagrin of the Bolsheviks. So it's it's not a place of kind of timeless harmony in the way that the i think a lot of older writing particularly about indigenous people and i think particularly about indigenous arctic people tends to look that there's kind of a vision of what and i'm using heavy air quotes here the eskimo is supposed to be and it's a sort of happy person who just lives you know without wanting much in the arctic and doesn't really have any politics and that's you know very clear from every possible kind of record you could have access to that that was not the case. However, I think it would also be a mistake to think that folks had exactly the same way of relating to the world that was imported by Americans and Russians when they arrive. And in particular, the ways in which, you know, for example, Yupik whalers understood the whales that they depended on and that were sort of critical parts of maintaining their societies in a, in a material and in a spiritual sense is very different from the vision of a whale that is brought in by commercial hunters. So in, in Yupik tradition, and this continues very much into the present, whales are understood as sentient moral beings that are paying attention to human society that are observing what people do And will permit themselves to be hunted only if the hunters are worthy and have kind of comported themselves in a proper way for the year when the whales are not around. So they, you know, they pass by these communities once or twice a year on their migration routes. And if whalers have been terrible to their families or have not helped elders in the community or have mistreated other animals or have, you know, kind of violated other rules of of social life and social life that very broadly, very broadly construed social life that includes, you know, people, but includes foxes and landforms and the sea ice and all sorts of other beings, then the whales will not choose to die for those hunters. So it it's a relationship of dependency um, on the actions of bowheads, and the bowheads are seen as moral actors. And the ways in which the crews of these whaling ships that arrive in the 1840s and keep whaling until you know the 1890s and the turn of the century is much more. They, they understand whales to be animals that are paying attention to them. They understand them as sentient because you know if you're hunting an animal, you have to observe it very very closely, um, and they're often very aware that the process of killing whales inflicts pain. So. You know the the whalers' logbooks, which are often not very demonstrative documents. They're not confessional, but even within these kind of formulaic logbooks, you have indications of whalers really struggling with the kind of work they're doing. At one level, but at another level, all of the incentives of the society that they come from is to kill as many whales as possible as quickly as possible, and it's the only way they get paid. And one of the things I found really both striking and I think resonant with the ways in which we find ourselves sort of making compromises or feeling compromised by operating under contemporary capitalism is that you can you can see in these logbooks ways in which whalers recognized that they were driving these animals towards extinction. They recognized that they were inflicting pain. They did not necessarily find their jobs enjoyable in any real sense. And they also didn't have a lot of other option.
0: This was a sort of diverse and polyglot seafaring proletariat. One one reason that the region that we live in today has such a large large Cape Verdean population.
1: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's a very um, you know that that's one thing that comes through if you read Moby Dick is that these crews were crewed by every different kind of person, um, and it's it's certainly accurate.
0: W- would you say that that Beringians w- w- without the running the risk of romanticizing them did just concretely understand something about human's relationship with nature that was more accurate and true.
1: It's an interesting way of framing that question. And it's interesting because it's it gets into one of the the tricky things when you're writing environmental history which is which sources do you lean upon the most? Um
0: and to what degree do you do you repre- accurately represent cosmovisions and to what degree do you kind of critique them based on some external yardstick.
1: Right. Yes. And I would say in this particular book, the the cosmovisions that I went in interested in investigating were the modernist ones, right? I was interested in the ways in which capitalism and socialism kind of work up the world in order to make it accessible to to people. And this happens in the context of indigenous societies that have very different understandings of the kind of morally correct way to do that, which includes thinking of animals as members of the political community, thinking of them explicitly as sentient moral actors, which is, you know, it's not a big part of Marx, for example, right? He's not talking about um, the political place of whales within the, the commune. Um, that's for people. And I think in that sense, as I was working on this book and as I have spent lots of time in the Arctic, I think that there is real possibility and real an exit or a liberation from some of the constraints of the modernist philosophies that I went there to study in the, the political traditions and the intellectual traditions of the Yupik, Chukchi, and the Nubyak, who have a far more kind of capacious understanding of who should be a part of a moral community who should you include when you make political decisions and i think you can see in the ways in which there has been talk in you know the last 10 or 15 years of trying to grant lake erie rights in kind of a legal sense that within the kind of traditions that that i grew up in and operate in for most of my life now there is kind of a growing sense of a need to include in our Political decision making to not kind of reduce the natural world to something that you either recreate in or use as a resource in an economic sense, as something to which you have contact regularly, as a on a daily basis, upon which you depend rather than extract, um, has a has new purchase um, even within kind of the the British common law tradition that we are inheritors of in the United States or something like that which I think is very different than saying we need to go copy what it is that Yupik people have been doing in their relationship with whales for 2000 years, because I don't live in a place with bowhead whales right now. It's not necessarily a sort of one-to-one export, um, which I think is where sometimes people kind of want to romanticize what indigenous people in the Arctic or anywhere are doing, right? And just sort of glom onto that idea and try to extract it for immediate use. But rather, it's it does offer some sense that the the kind of set of political choices that you know I feel like I've inherited are not the end of the line, right? We we could include a more capacious understanding of the world. It's something that not only has been done but is done in many communities, um, and that it it does actually change your relationship to the places that you live in if you start to imagine yourself as part of a a social world that's not simply human.
0: You write, quote, Being a whaling nation made the United States an imperial one, in the Pacific, an empire that saw civilization as having commercial potential and commerce as having the potential to civilize. Making the world useful was America's divine cause. And so whales and their killers made manifest destiny maritime. How did whaling economics express and also shape the geopolitical ambitions of American empire in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries?
1: I think in a in just a very crude sense, it put Americans all over the Pacific and far in advance of the American Navy, which, you know, if you think are thinking about the eighteen thirties and and 40s, when when whaling is really uh, kind of solidified as an American industry. The the British Empire had been major whalers, but they don't make it through the War of 1812 in great shape. So the United States kind of takes up the mantle of the global whaling industry at that point. And so the the whaling ships are in many ways the vanguard of U.S. territorial claims. Um, Whaling captains are often asking the U.S. government to do things like send out cartographers. So they have decent maps of where the reefs are. Sometimes the US Navy is in the business of trying to bail out whalers who get into trouble in in faraway places. Um, It's whaling ships that actually sort of make the original approach to Japan that that Perry follows up. Whaling ships are all over the coast of of Russia, you know, in in a way that the United States doesn't really otherwise have presence. So one of the things that I I think is true very often in the history of kind of U S expansion into the West is that it is elements of the market that go first and they kind of drag um, the state structure behind it along with Mm -hmm. the kind of the power that comes with the state, right. The need to police things, the need to create some sort of civic structure in order to adjudicate land claims and legal messes. And in the case of whaling, it, it actually often was, you know, the U.S. government trying to have some sort of legal role in the lives of crew and captains. Like, was corporal punishment allowable and how much? And who did you tell if your captain was beating you all the time? Um, where was the court? So those kind of jurisdictional... Or if
0: someone got murdered at sea, which I presume happened.
1: Yes, right. Under whose charge does that does that land?
0: So this all made, made Tsarist Russia very alarmed about their lack of control over their Arctic periphery, and about American encroachment upon it. You write, quote, Imperial Russia, owner of Beringia in the eyes of the wider world for over a century, was at risk of losing all Russian prestige in the far north, as one administrator wrote. The empire had already lost Alaska. Now, it lagged the Americans on its own continent. Revolutions change who has power— And who sets value? The Whaler's Revolution undermined Russian sovereignty, control over law, space, fealty, prestige, energy, the meaning of the Tsar's rule. How was it that whaling so emphatically highlighted the perceived need for Russian sovereign control vis a vis both Americans across the border and and Beringians on the purported Russian side of the border?
1: I was amazed when I was working in the Russian archives how just how um, anxious and uh, powerless the, the kind of Russian bureaucrats felt um, in the particularly by the 1880s and 1890s. Um, I think it was in part because the Chukchi Peninsula was a piece of the Russian Empire that was never really incorporated into it, in large part because the Russian Empire lost this war with the Chukchi and the Yupik in the in the 18th century. And so they had this sort of tenuous trade relationship set up on the edge of Chukchi territory, which they pretended to be kind of an imperial outpost, but really was trade was conducted on Chukchi terms as much as on Russian imperial ones. And then the Russian Empire had owned Alaska and administrated it for quite a while, but in 1867, more or less concludes that they can't protect. Um, this overseas branch of their empire from the British who are coming across Canada. and So they sell it to the United States. And I think there was kind of a hope that at that point, that was going to seal off this sovereign question that the Alaska had been sold. It was the United States's problem to protect the British Empire. But then these whale ships start- Like
0: the, the Russians sort of thought that the British and Canadians on one side and the Americans on the other would sort of play themselves off against one another?
1: Yes. I think that's, huh. um, I think that's at least a common interpretation of why Russia sells Alaska is yeah. at, the, at the time they sold it. They're actually getting along with the United States quite well, but getting along with the British empire quite badly. And so selling Alaska to the United States meant it was in the hands of kind of an ally. Um, but then it was also the allies problem to deal with the expansion of the Russian empire or sorry, the British empire, which is, which is kind of heading into Alaskan territory overland through Canada. But the the whaling ships are, I mean, partly because they are not interested in human borders. They're interested in following where bowheads go, spend a lot of time off the coast of uh, the, the Chukchi Peninsula. They spend a lot of time trading with Chukchi and Yupik people along the coast, which means that a lot of the fox furs and other kinds of fur wealth that had been traded inland to the Russian Empire suddenly turn around and start getting traded out to Americans. They get shipwrecked and taken in by Chukchi and Yupik people who teach them, you know, there's an exchange of language. So ship captains are learning Chukchi and uh, Chukchi are learning English. Um, and I think the biggest affront is when missionary materials start making their way, you know, whaling captains leave a Bible or something like that, that's in English. Um, and so there's a lot of concern about the fact that the, the major trade language was English. It wasn't Russian and this sort of wealth is getting siphoned out of the, of the empire. But the Russian empire doesn't actually have um, a lot of capacity to fully police what's happening in Chukotka, in part because it is so far from the capital in St. Petersburg. The Russian navy would send vessels north from Vladivostok in the spring, but because of the, the kind of patterns of sea ice movement, it was actually easier for the American ships to follow the retreat of the sea ice um, and end up in Chukwutka before the people coming up from Vladivostok. So these these naval trips would always arrive a little bit late. And it's a vast coastline. It just was not an easy place to to try to police with a couple of vessels. So there was this kind of sense that at least comes up in the archival documents of being robbed, right? That, you know, the, the Russians were very aware that these whales were valuable, and that the walruses that... Um, the, the whalers start killing when they run low on bowheads, you know, that these were kind of a piece of Russian imperial patrimony that was getting uh, pulled away by the American empire and there wasn't a lot they could do.
0: What do we learn when when we think of this place as a borderland and an American borderland in particular? Because when I think of borderland and I think when many people think of an American borderland, they think of the, the Southwest.
1: Yes, I think that's, I mean, that's, there's an amazing kind of rich literature about the Southwestern borderlands. I think part of what you learn is that, I mean, it's a borderland with a different set of dynamics because it's between different empires, different European empires. And it's a borderland where the end goal for those empires, I think, looks a little bit different than it does in the Southwest because the United States and Russia as much as they wanted to be able to send you know permanent missionaries or schools or establish you know some kind of sovereign outpost they wanted policing power they were never imagining that there were going to be large influxes of of settlers that there was going to be a land rush um, or even that it could be sustained there so very early on both in the Russian imperial and the American documents, you see a recognition that the the landscape is going to require something different and that kind of both places are from the very beginning really questioning what do you do with a border that you can't secure by settling it with, in the American case, with white settlers who I think are, are often in American history understood as being sort of the vanguard of holding a national line, right? So the question is, how do you naturalize or assimilate Indigenous people to hold that border for you. And in a place where, as with Indigenous people all across the United States, their desire to be part of the American or Russian project is, is an open question. They, they didn't ask to be a part of either of these political entities. So I think there's it's a borderland with a, a lot of anxiety, as comes with all borderlands, um, but a particular kind of anxiety because of its, its remoteness from the political center Because of these bursts of economic activity that are difficult to regulate and the sense that the the kind of usual workarounds for securing borders by turning them into farmland is not as operative.
0: You write, quote, in the 19th century, a generation raised on translations of James Fenimore Cooper saw in Russia's East a new world, a way to not imitate Europe but transcend it by substantiating progress without capitalist excess or immorality. Siberia could be Russia's American West, a place that made the empire's future by assimilating wild land and, quote, complete savages like the Chukchi, who lived in the, quote, ignorance and degradation of the past. But, quote, the Russian Empire looked northeast and saw its aliens not fully governed and at risk of becoming aliens governed by and profiting someone else. How was Russia's conception of its Arctic frontier informed by both the fear of U.S. westward expansion that we've been talking about, but also this desire to imitate it as a model that would provide a contrast against the the European model to which Russian elites so often looked?
1: I'm so glad you brought up that question, because I think sometimes the the, the Russian imperial part of this story is less; um, it comes out a little bit less. And I think the one of the really interesting things to me about Siberia, as somebody trained kind of equally as a Russian historian as an American historian, is that they, Siberia and um, the kind of Great Plains or the American West, have these senses of being mirrors of each other, in the sense that they're you know huge geographical spaces upon which these imperial ambitions get poured. And then it turns out that particularly Russia is looking at the United States pretty consistently as the Russian empire um, is moving into the East in the 19th century. And of course, Russia had been in Siberia for a very long time at that point, but it's a moment in the Russian empire where they're really trying to kind of modernize. They Are interested in having a monarchy, many of them, not everybody, obviously, because then we get to the revolution down the road. Um, But there's there is a desire to kind of maintain traditions of Russian governance in some form that make it different than Europe. And in Siberia, often what that comes down to is some way of taking what many Russian elites see as the kind of unfettered, out-of-control, rapacious capitalism as existed in the U.S. and kind of tame it and turn it into a really expressly kind of civilizational mission that will kind of help better people all along the the kind of northern edges of Russia and also be good for the czar. But some of their skepticism is really around the sense that what's happening on the American frontier is violent. Um, It's It's kind of ungoverned and it's really done at the sake of profit above all else. It doesn't have a lot of ethical content and that Russia could distinguish itself by, you know, colonizing an entire continent um, by making it part of the empire. And you could see from that quote, you read that there's, there's lots of deeply loaded, you know, social evolutionary language about who is backwards and who is modern and who is savage and who is not that is very conversant with ideas in Europe at the time but that Russia had this opportunity to do it better because they kind of had these roots in a political tradition that wasn't as beholden to the market.
0: Speaking of of the revolution, let's talk about how the Russian revolution changed and really intensified the Russian project to control its Bryngeen hinterland. You write, quote, if socialism triumphed in the cold, it could triumph everywhere. As the newspaper Investia described... In the Arctic, socialist technology has conquered nature. Man has conquered death. But as you describe, it was through the Stalinist state's brutal and lethal gulag regime that Soviets ultimately secured continuous and large scale access to gold, tin, uranium, bauxite, and in doing so, really also fixed Russian settlement in place on the land. Under Khrushchev, there was less despotism but the arctic remained just as if not more central to the soviet imaginary how did Chukotka become the most soviet of soviet places this periphery that was seen in a sense as the nation's moral center
1: yeah i like the way that you kind of encapsulated that whole spread of the, the soviet span because it, it's it was fascinating to me in doing the, the research for this the ways in which what Chukotka was to the rest of the Soviet Union changes. And at the, at the very beginning, it is a problem um, and kind of a seemingly intractable problem for a couple of years. The Chukotka really isn't fully claimed by the red army until 1923. So officially the Russian revolution is in 1917. So it takes a long time for kind of the edge of the Bolshevik state to arrive. And then Even after the Red Army has taken control and there's kind of this new influx of these really dedicated, excited kind of Bolshevik missionaries, essentially, who arrive, you know, really fired up about bringing the revolution. They have all sorts of just very quotidian supply problems. They end up buying things from the Americans for several years because they can't get um, material all the way across the continent from Russian manufacturing centers, which is really it's ideologically humiliating to be in this position of having just created the worker state and then you're dependent on, you know, these capitalist traders and whalers coming over from Alaska.
0: You write, quote, the Soviet Union remained dependent on the market it existed to replace.
1: Yes, and you could think, I I have a great deal of kind of admiration and sympathy for some of these early Bolsheviks because they, they come so unbelievably dedicated to the idea that they can transform everything and they, you know, they show up in a place that really doesn't have a road system. It doesn't have easy supply lines. Um, they don't speak any Chukchi or Yupik. When they try to speak Chukchi or Yupik, they get, you know, somewhere between incomprehension and laughed at. Many people there don't speak any Russian. It, you know, it's just it's really an unbelievably challenging situation. And they have to depend on these uh, these traders coming from Nome, many of whom very much understand that the Bolshevik revolution is there to put them out of business so there's really kind of complicated and st- stressed relationships between you know the the kind of vanguard of the Soviet state and these traders that they're dependent on and that that situation kind of eases after you know into the 19 later 1920s when the supply lines get better but what the what the Soviets find is that you know they arrive with this sense that they have kind of the one true way to bring everyone into a glorious modern utopia. And not everybody in Chukotka is particularly interested in that vision. Some people are. There are some you kind know, of amazing documents. Um, I found one autobiography by a young Yupik man who becomes absolutely committed to the Bolshevik cause. Um, he's very active in recruiting people. And then there are particularly among the Chukchi, who are many of whom owned domestic reindeer, a real skepticism about what the socialist promise was and whether or not it was a promise at all. And so there was between the, the Chukchi and, and the Soviet Union quite a bit of friction and sometimes open violence. So the, the kind of claims to sovereignty and the ability to say, yes, this space is a piece of the Soviet Union and everyone here is a Soviet citizen and they're all participant in, you know, carrying forward the revolution was a difficult thing to actually say in practice, even until the 1940s and parts of Chukotka, much, you know, much to the chagrin of the of the Soviets.
0: You write that, quote, on the particular human character of change, Marx and Carnegie and their diverse interpreters roughly agreed they disagreed on much else what was this fundamental thing that these seemingly very different ideologies and systems at least in practice agreed upon
1: i think and i'm you know i'm very far from the first person to ha- have noticed this or written about it is that the the kind of dna both of marxism and of many capitalist thinkers comes out of the Enlightenment, and kind of ways of understanding the world in which human beings are the primary movers. Um, you know, it, it is a political community in which people are the only actants. There's there's not a lot of room for natural forces as anything other than something to be conquered. And I think there are also both ideologies that come of age during the Industrial Revolution, and so see human beings as particularly able to create conditions for limitless growth. This is something you can see in, often in the way that, that capitalism is still discussed, that in order to see if the economy is healthy, it has to be growing. There isn't a neutral state or negative state in which you can have a healthy GDP. It has to be going up. And the the Soviet Union had, I think, because it was trying to both replace capitalism and also s- sort of surpass it to get beyond it, Often, kind of tried to quantify those gains through saying, you know, we are now producing more. We're able to create more wealth out of the world that we're controlling in the Soviet Union, and eventually, you know, if socialism was to go global, we're we're going to create a wealthier world in a material sense through the way that we manufacture things and create new industries. And so, in that sense, I think the two ideologies have a lot in common, um, and they often have a similar kind of temporal. Sense, which is a very linear one and a, a one of linear growth. In fact, that you know, kind of the the nature of human history is to increase plenty for human beings on and on and on. I think where they differ, um, and certainly this is something that's very clear in the in the writings of the early Bolsheviks who arrive in Trudkuta, is that capitalism doesn't have a lot of explicit discussion of the moral responsibility between people. You know, early capitalists write about making more money. They write about filling those ship's holds with more whale oil because that's the only way to pay people's wages. But the way in which these, you know, often very young, extremely idealistic Bolsheviks are talking about it is as kind of a project of creating fundamental, liberatory human equality on earth. Um, So there's this kind of piercing ethical vision, which obviously in the case of the Soviet Union, you can find plenty and deep deviations from that vision over the course of its, you know, the course of Soviet history. But it's articulated in a way that is not present in the documents I was reading from the capitalist perspective.
0: A follow up question I think many listeners want me to ask is, do you think Marxism can be salvaged from this? monomaniacally human-centered and growth-oriented project that, that you describe in your book?
1: I think so because, I mean, one of the things that I... This is not necessarily a hopeful book in many of its particulars, but one of the things that I do think is hopeful about it is all of these kind of big ideological systems do have some play in their particulars. And even in the case of Soviet socialism, which I think is as Promethean- and growth focused and not interested in bringing in questions of the environment in any explicit sense, particularly in the Stalinist period. Even then there was actually the ability to flex around the the environments they found in the far north. So I have one chapter that's about walrus hunting and the ways in which capitalist walrus hunting in the North Pacific drives the walrus population very far down because of market demand And then there's basically a repeat of the process in the early 20th century for Soviet demand reasons, sort of to fill the the socialist plan. But then, you know, the Soviet Union actually kind of concludes that in order to have people living in this part of the North, in order to be a country that is modern and, you know, has respect in the world, they need to not kill all of the walruses. And so they end up kind of creating a set of legislative practices that are very similar to the kinds of hunting that had been um, in use in this part of the world, you know, for, for thousands of years. So, you know, a couple thousand walruses a year rather than tens of thousands of walruses a year being killed. And that's in the Soviet case, right? And I feel like if Soviet ideology has the capacity to flex um, under the conditions that it was, you know, it was, it was really trying to overtake all of the industrial revolution in a couple of decades that kind of a more considered approach to imagining a socialism that had that commitment to ethical obligation to other people, um, had a capacity of thinking about the fact that, you know, we can imagine work as being something more fulfilling than just getting a paycheck. You know, all, all of the things that to me are so exciting when you read Marx and you kind of read his diagnosis of the capitalist malaise could also learn to include the world in kind of a, a more capacious sense, and I think I mean you can see this in scholars like Nick Estes or um, you know kind of indigenous scholars who are who are pushing a variant of socialism that you know kind of has that commitment to a revolutionary tradition but is also trying pretty explicitly to not repeat the kind of the technocratic excesses of of past versions.
0: Let's talk about reindeer which we in the U.S. call caribou when they're in the wild, but we call them reindeer as well when they're domesticated. They, they play a big and fascinating role in this history because as you write, quote, domesticated herds seemed to the governments of Russia and the United States a means of social conversion. Changing the relationship between reindeer and people, owning them privately as a small farmer, as part of a missionary education— or collectivizing them in a kolkhoz could make Beringians part of sovereign visions. Beringia existed in a time apart. Reindeer would bring the land and people into history. This is a really fascinating and complex history. How did domesticated reindeer first emerge? What would become Russian Chakotka before being transplanted to American Alaska? And how did this attempt to master nature, to eliminate its variation, serve American, czarist, and Soviet visions, visions so seemingly at odds?
1: So this piece of history was a real gift to to me that I I, I sort of couldn't believe when I I learned about its particulars. And it's a story that starts several hundred years before this book does with the domestication of, of reindeer, which is a process that kind of moves its way east across Eurasia. Um, over the past thousand years or so. And so there are there are multiple indigenous societies all the way from what is now Norway uh, to Chukotka that domesticated reindeer. And domestication is kind of a, I think it's better to think of it as a spectrum rather than a state. So, you know, reindeer are, When they're domesticated, highly tolerant of people, they'll stay around them, but they also return to a wild state pretty easily, more easily than like my dog would. Um, (laughs) He's he's pretty firmly in the domesticated camp. (laughs) Um, But what this does is it gives people in Chukotka and all across the the Eurasian North kind of more consistent access to reindeer as a source of transportation. um, So they, they can do work for people by carrying them or by pulling sleds. Um, Reindeer is a source of meat and other calories, and reindeer is a source of of hides. And when you're up on the kind of high tundra parts of Siberia, reindeer are one of the few animals that kind of can transform the plant life there, which generally speaking is not easy to eat. There There are exceptions that are really important for human life, but a lot of it is not very digestible. And what reindeer do is they kind of transform that tundra into something that is in fact delicious. This technology actually is part of what turns the Chukchi into a really kind of powerful political force Um, and trading reindeer skins because they had bred reindeer for white pelts is actually a big piece of cross-bearing straight commerce before Europeans arrived because there's a big demand for these white skins in Alaska where reindeer are not domesticated. And part of the reason, I think if you kind of read the historical record, it, what it's not saying explicitly, but I would think is there, is that the Chukchi were very aware of how powerful it was to have these domesticated animals and were not interested in folks in Alaska getting access to them. Um, so,
0: and some people had gotten quite wealthy. There was, there was class, what, what, what looks to an outside observer like class stratification.
1: Right. So some some Chukchi owned many reindeer, you know, big, big herds, and some Chukchi were essentially wage workers who were paid in access to reindeer meat and and hides and things. So it creates what to me was kind of the most unbelievable setup in the, the Beringian region, which is that on the Russian side of the Bering Strait, you have people who own reindeer as private property, and some people own more reindeer than others. So you get this it looks from the outside like a class system and you very much have an idea of private property and on the kind of American side of the Bering Strait there are not domesticated reindeer historically and the caribou populations are extremely important um, for Inupiaq and Yupik hunters who generally conduct those hunts in kind of a collective way so certainly people had a sense of things they owned so it's not you know I think there's a sort of romantic version of indigenous past in which there's no property at all. But the the actual kind of hunting of these animals was a thing that was done by a community to feed the community and did not have a sense of animal ownership or land ownership specifically attached to it. And So that's the setup in the United States. And what this means is that the US and the Soviet Union are basically involved in completely opposite projects with indigenous populations who have these very different social relationships with reindeer so that the United States is coming in and trying to convert you know, Inupiaq people who have a communal way of hunting wild reindeer into private property owners. And the Soviet Union comes in and is trying to convert Chukchi reindeer owners into collective reindeer farmers.
0: Because they get identified rather than primitive communists as primitive capitalists, as kulaks.
1: Right. Much to the uh, much to the detriment of everyone, really. Um, the fact that some Chukchi owned more reindeers than others meant that particularly by the kind of mid-1930s, as the Stalinist effort to collectivize is really heating up, anyone who is reticent to give up their reindeer to a collective farm was labeled as a as a kulak because they looked like somebody who had sort of too much class attachment. And so these these projects, the United States ends up importing domesticated reindeer from what was then imperial russia in the 1890s along with
0: her along with herders
1: along with herders right they managed to hire some young chukchi men and buy some reindeer which was actually tricky because the chukchi basically had a prohibition against selling reindeer to outsiders kind of i think as part of protecting the the technology of domestication but they, they managed to buy some. They import them to the United States.
0: It's sort of like the U.S.'s battle over, you know, semiconductors in Huawei right now. It's like very...
1: And so they they established these reindeer herding stations that are initially usually part of missions. Um, so, you know, the a Catholic mission would get a certain number of reindeer and the various Protestant denominations had reindeer. And the idea was that this would kind of give um, Inupiaq access to the market in kind of a Jeffersonian yeoman farmer model that, you know, a a family could have their reindeer herd and graze it on common land. But, you know, from that would turn their private property to some sort of profit.
0: You quote Smithsonian naturalist Charles Townsend as saying it would, quote, render a wild people pastoral or agricultural, putting them on, quote, the first step toward their advancement.
1: Yes, he's, he was very useful in saying the quiet part very out loud. Yes, <laughs> don't have to do a lot of interpretation there. And it was, you know, this this kind of lockstep between converting people to Christianity so that their souls would be taken care of in the afterlife, and to capitalism so that their kind of corporeal lives would be taken care of in the present is really a lockstep through the the late nineteenth and early part of the twentieth century. It has a really mixed outcome um, for many young. Yupik families and Inupiaq families, reindeer were kind of potentially one option among many for making a living. And they came with a lot of, a lot of burdens initially because missionaries would require, they would require Christian conversion. They would require that people went to school for a certain number of years. And most of all, they required not actually eating any of the reindeer so that they could grow the herd numbers. So you had to put a lot of work in and not necessarily get, um, a lot out of it for, for quite a while. So the missions didn't always have an easy time attracting people, but some families really kind of eventually could take up reindeer herding as a practice, particularly after the gold rush, because a market for draft reindeer and for reindeer meat really takes off. And then on the Russian side, the, the kind of effort to take these privately owned reindeer herds and collectivize them starts off in a very gradual way that the you know, the Bolsheviks would basically try to talk people into it. Um, This didn't get very far. Uh, Most Chukchi were very, very aware that their reindeer herds were the source of, like, real political and social power and were not particularly interested in giving them up. And by the 1930s, because it becomes kind of ideologically impossible to not have a part of the country that's collectivized, this turns into open violence between the Chukchi and Soviets um, m- much like the violence that's seen in kind of heavily peasant agricultural parts of the Soviet union also where peasants sort of will kill their livestock, sometimes will kill themselves rather than sort of join the, the collective effort. And that, that kind of violence is really a piece of the relationship between the Soviets and the Chukchi, at least in parts of the interior of the Chukchi peninsula up until kind of the Second World War has ended. Um, And then there's enough military power in Chukotka to really finally end the insurrections. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com.
0: The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly digjacobin, all lowercase, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash DIG Jacobin, all in lowercase. You write, quote, Chukchi herds were socialist in form. Whether their herders were socialist in content was harder to parse. How did did Soviets seek to remake Chukchi society? And to what degree was that project ever, ever complete?
1: That's a question that's, um, it's a very vexing one as a historian, (laughs) Um, partly just for issues of sources that there's a kind of Soviet source that would make you sound like the project was complete by the 1950s. And I think if you dig a little deeper, it's clear that what was happening is, is much more analogous to what happens in colonial situations all over the place where there are aspects of what the Soviet union was demanding of Chukchi reindeer herders that really changed the form of reindeer herding, that they were organized differently. I think probably one of the, the most profound changes is that the Soviet Union wanted Chukchi children to be educated in school, which meant not being out with the reindeer during the year. And reindeer have to move in order to eat um, since it's there's not a lot of fodder. They are kind of continually following you know, just migratory patterns so that they have enough to eat, which means that people, if you are reliant on reindeer, are also moving all the time. And, you know, the Soviet model of education, like the American one, is one where you sit in a classroom for nine months out of the year and you're not following a reindeer herd around. So children ended up living in small communities all along the the, the kind of Chukchi Peninsula, um, usually with their mothers, um, because there was also kind of a, a sense that Herding labor was something that should mostly be done by men and that women could be employed in other ways in town. So they could sew, they could be employed on fox farms, um, you know, work for the government in various ways or be teachers, but they should live with their children. And then their husbands would go um, often be flown by helicopter and do these kind of factory like shifts for a month or so with a reindeer herd and then be flown back and a new group of herders would go out, which is a very different way of organizing your work life than when families, groups of families would move with the herd, um, and kind of consistently be with them.
0: And and that really highlights how both the the American and Soviet state were both very troubled by nomadism.
1: Yes. And I think it's something you see in, in kind of state formation in various parts of the world, right? It's a, it's a problem on the great plains in the United States. It's a problem. It's a problem with the Bedouin. Mm -hmm. If you are, Saudi Arabia or Jordan or Israel, um, because, you know, these are these are not people who oh, kind of obey
0: or the the Berbers in North Africa.
1: Right. Yes. And so I think I think there's a literature around the kind of problem of nomadism. And this is kind of another case of that that defies the ways in which states make citizens through things like education and having consistent access to certain kinds of medical care. And, you know, one way the Soviet Union could have done this, of course, is to send teachers with the reindeer herds and fly the doctors out rather than the herders. But, you know, the idea was to make the chukchi as alike to a factory worker anywhere in the Soviet Union as possible. And so that, you know, that, that put a particular lens on how this work relationship should be organized.
0: New sovereignties in both cases required new subjects, and in the U.S. on the U.S. side, something that it shared with with the Soviet model was this kind of push for a certain uniformity and commensurability. How did the incorporation of Beringians into into wage labor and thus into dependence upon commodities for their social reproduction change life and also change how just value was measured, given that any particular sort of labor on the one hand and object for consumption on the other were all suddenly made commensurable in the market.
1: Yeah, one of the kind of historical facts that I find really illustrative of this on the American side, and actually on the Russian side before the Soviet Union, is the way in which things were measured by red fox pelts. So, you know, a certain number of hours of work would be worth a fox and a half, box of sugar would be worth two foxes. And so there's this kind of direct reduction of a particular species into essentially a form of currency before paper money shows up in any real way.
0: And then everything
1: else is kind of measured in, in divisions of that. And that is obviously a really profound change. It's not one that completely replaces or supplants um, other ways of understanding what a fox is. I think there's a a temptation or a tendency when people are talking about about capitalism or about aspects of modernity to imagine that it's sort of so powerful that it can drive everything else out. And I understand that because I think when you've grown up within these ways of thinking, they're so, you know, and I find this in myself, right? You know, I grew up in Iowa as a, in the middle of a capitalist democratic country. Um, those are kind of my habitual ways of thinking that are running in the background. But if those aren't your habitual ways of thinking, you know, the, I, I found evidence of places where you people would understand the value of a fox if their interlocutor was a trader coming off of a whale ship who would understand it as a unit of of labor or as a certain number of boxes of flour and would also understand a fox as a being that you needed to respect in certain ways and trap with certain rules and you know harvest with respect or I should say kill with respect because they're it's not necessary that the one way completely drive out another way of relating, but certainly that's not very tolerable to be either the American kind of project of making citizens or the Soviet one. Um, so I think a lot of this gets driven kind of underground or isn't publicly discussed or is you, you find it in, in little traces in the archives, but it's, it's not the kind of major text. Um, and that tends to be the story of kind of assimilation and the creation of new citizens and, and you see this particularly for both countries right after the the end of the Second World War. So the moment when the Bering Strait becomes a real site of Cold War anxiety is the moment when there's a lot of emphasis put on making sure that indigenous people on both sides are conforming to either the American or the Soviet way of being so that they're not potentially places of, of leakage between the two projects.
0: American ideology wasn't just working or attempting to work its magic on indigenous people, of course, but also very importantly on on white settlers from the United States. And you write about this American frontier ideology that promised that, quote, first encountering and then cultivating the frontier would lead to, quote, a capitalism of property and not just extraction what does the fact that Alaskan economics nonetheless continued to be defined by extraction in the form of mining and later oil? What does that reveal? Because ultimately, there was this Jeffersonian Yeoman ideal, not only that the US government sought to impose upon indigenous people in the area, but that was offered up as an escape valve from continuously, over and over again, from this dystopian reality of wage labor in the continental united states but it would again and again fail to deliver on its promise of of an escape
1: that's something i found important to tell in the story is that these ideologies you know are are fundamentally in the business of assimilating and therefore often doing great violence to the native peoples that they're trying to convert or kind of manufacture them into citizens Uh, through force or through other kinds of of methods. But there's also ways in which the experience of the the outsiders who end up in Alaska and in Chukotka has a similar, they're they're not equivalent, but they have moments in which the the experience does not live up to the ideological ideals. So it's not like capitalism is working for every foreigner who arrives um, in Alaska. And I think the gold rush is a place where that's particularly visible because the gold is discovered right at the end of the 19th century. It's a moment of enormous upheaval for uh, U.S. economics in the in the lower 48. You know, there's been these sequences of depressions. It's it's the middle of the Gilded Age, right? So you have a few people who are becoming extremely wealthy, and then a working class that's under enormous pressure and very complicated racial dynamics of the kind of post Reconstruction era playing into this and for many people it was very clearly not working right this was so obvious in the the kind of diaries that gold rushers left that they were fleeing you know this this sense that they could work their entire lives and be absolutely impoverished or right on the edge of impoverishment so they were heading out for the territory to try to find an exit from that kind of of capitalist churn and identified it as such, right? Like this form of industrial capitalism is not working. And so what I'm going to go do is go to the frontier. And what I can do is actually just drag some money out of the ground. And then I will be okay. And it turns out that it usually doesn't work that way, because most gold mining operations require capital to make capital. And so they end up profiting people who can invest in large scale mining equipment. And these, you know, tens of of Mostly, but not entirely young men who are coming and trying to get rich um, and kind of, you know, get money to do things like buy their family farm or have enough money to get married. They have very kind of sensible goals often, right? Some of them are imagining, you know, untold millions. But for a lot of people, this was supposed to be a chance to kind of start over.
0: But it ends up being meet the new boss, same as the old boss, because the capitalist frontier is actually fundamentally capitalist
1: right yeah and and very quickly like the the moment of being able to kind of make money through your own labor and and profit from it lasts for you know a couple of years if that and then it turns into working for these kind of big conglomerates um and there's you know people are very aware of it and they're writing about you know wait a minute now i'm just doing wage work but in a place that's terribly cold for a lot of the year. Um, And I'm very far from my family. Um, So there's, there's a lot of dashed hopes, um, and a lot of really very critical thinking about, you know, what the government is doing, what capitalism is, Um, it's not an accident that there's a kind of major branch of the American Socialist Party in Nome, because there are all of these, you know, young laborers who saw this promise of being able to actually make capitalism work for them, and then it doesn't come to pass.
0: One other question on on, on ideology that I that I want to ask relates back to that U.S. program to encourage domesticated reindeer that began under the first Alaskan Secretary of Education, Sheldon Jackson, because you, you write that it, quote, "'Combined earthly salvation through private po- property with the eternal salvation of Christian conversion.'" To earn a herd, in Upiac men had to move to a mission, tend animals they were prohibited from killing so that stock could breed, were punished for eating so that stock could be sold, and were chastised for leaving untended in order to kill things they could eat. But then this U.S. policy was overtaken by a new philosophy that, quote, separated Christian salvation from market participation. How did this shift in the relationship between Temporal and celestial governance on the American side happen, and how did that change change the, the the distinction between the the Russian, Soviet, and American approach to governance?
1: So, one thing that that happens in the early twentieth century is there's a kind of broader movement within um, American education policy to start taking the separation between church and state a little more seriously. So government funding directly to missions becomes more suspect. And in Alaska, this also comes with a real critique of the way that this first education commissioner, Sheldon Jackson, had been operating these missions where there are actually kind of uh, surveys done by the government, which comes in and says, hey, you've been taking federal money to, in theory, create these young capitalists out of Nubiak men. And what we're getting, in fact, are missions that own a lot of reindeer. Um, it's, it's not actually doing its job. And the way that the government interprets this is that there was too much emphasis put on kind of Christian education and not enough emphasis put on kind of the practical business of owning a reindeer operation. There's a, a split in the early 20th century where you know, church going is still supported. It's still something that's considered an, an important part of being an American. There are very active missions in most or many of these communities that, but they're funded by churches. So the the church in my hometown of Decorah, Iowa actually funded a mission in Shishmaref. Um, And there's, there's lots of cases of this where, you know, small towns all over the Midwest and South and various places were sending money, you know, on a monthly basis to, to keep these missions going. But the federal government moved to this much more secular model of education And I think this is a place where the kind of lived experience of what the Soviet Union was trying to do and what the United States was doing ends up looking somewhat different in that in the Soviet case, there's a sense that material salvation and becoming a good person in a kind of moral sense are actually the same. So a fully converted Soviet citizen who is kind of taken on Marxist principles and is a piece of a communal society in a Marxist way is a saved soul. And of course it's not saved in the hereafter it's saved in the, in the present material utopia that people are building together. So there's this unity of kind of a spiritual salvation and a, a, a material transformation. And in the United States, that relationship becomes more contingent and it, um, it's less obvious that the church can sometimes say one thing about wealth, and the the kind of market forces can say another thing about wealth. And they're they're not sometimes they are kind of operating in tandem, and sometimes they're at cross purposes, and sometimes they're just sort of two things that exist together without reinforcing each other in one way or the other. It was just something that I I found striking in the ways in which. Um, the Soviet project just had such a clear sense of itself as this moral project, whereas, you know, the 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 project of making citizens in the United States has many more valiances and kind of internal contradictions, often um, because there are these not entirely harmonious um, impulses between the church and the state.
0: You write about the fox fur industry and how it exposed the difficulty of imposing order on Arctic nature. You write, quote, The roaring demand for fur crashed with the rest of the American economy in 1929. Foxes lost more than half their value by 1930. The progress to preached to the Yupik and Anupiat had showed itself to be full of temper. One year, prices for fur swelled. Another, they dipped. One year, fur farms bought salmon. The next, they closed. One foreigner championed salvation through profit. Another restricted trapping. The state was one of contradiction. Say a little bit about the fox fur industry and then more generally, how the very dynamics of capitalism undermined this core capitalist project of imposing order upon nature.
1: So I ended up learning a lot about foxes and particularly Arctic foxes in writing this book. And one of the things that's kind of a well-known phenomenon, both for ecologists and for anyone who spends a lot of time around foxes in the, in the far North is that their population numbers vary enormously. So they, they tend to have these real peaks and then they'll crash for a couple of years and then they'll grow again. So there's not a sort of steady state number of foxes and Indigenous hunters, when they started using foxes as kind of a way of interacting with and getting goods from traders and with the kind of manufactured marketplace, had to kind of deal with this fact, um, and often dealt with it because they were trading more than just foxes. They were trading walrus ivory or other kinds of things in years when when fox numbers were lower, and of course when fox numbers were lower, that also meant they could command better prices in kind of the early part of the fur trade. But by the The kind of 1920s and 1930s as the American state and then eventually the Soviet state become more of a presence in in Beringia, there's a desire to take that kind of stochastic habit of foxes and turn it into something like a farm. So you get fox farms on both sides of the Bering Strait that are supposed to undo that cyclical uh, up and down cycle so that you can produce either a kind of consistent number of foxes or in the Soviet case, you could actually just produce more and more ad infinitum. And that in the United States kind of works in the sense that you can farm foxes. Um, You can kind of regulate away a lot of that population up and down problem that is kind of vexing for a market because perhaps foxes are really in vogue and then you're having a population crash in the Arctic and then you just can't meet uh, demand. But one of the things I found interesting is that the the ways in which these fox farms are sold to people living in the Arctic is that they will be a steady source of income. But of course, the market itself is not a steady source of anything, um, as we're all incredibly aware <laughs> in the twenty-first century. Um and it was certainly true in the nineteen twenties also that, that the market is capricious and it has its own cycles and it will kind of pay attention to goods produced by a part of the world for a while, and then there will be some major crash like the great depression or maybe people's fancy just moves on and no one is wearing fox fur anymore so the the kind of the promise that's given to to you people or in fact given to anyone who's participating in a capitalist economy that this is a kind of stable form of growth it's a it's a teleology that's marching us all toward a better world in some general way because of the laws of supply and demand Actually, in practice, doesn't look like that at all. And it's something that families who depended on foxes and were kind of thinking about their market participation through this animal make really clear in the historical record that we were kind of offered this vision of s- stable life. And it turns out that the market is no more stable than these kind of natural patterns that were already operative.
0: And it was that market instability... That also gave a brief reprieve to bowhead whales in, I believe, the late 19th century. The, as just an aside, interestingly, you write a lot about how the bowhead whales adapted the hunt by learning how to flee it and hiding under the ice flows. But that's not what gave them the, the reprieve from the slaughter. Rather, it was the invention of kerosene and then spring steel. You write, quote, bowheads avoided extinction not because a new space opened in the accounting ledger to tally their worth alive. They survived because, in the world outside the strait, they ceased to have value at all.
1: Yeah, one thing that I I found interesting in kind of comparing the ways in which the market interest in things made or grown uh, in Beringia, so bowhead whales in this case, Versus sometimes what happens on the Soviet side of the strait is that the market tends to be something that arrives for a while and then goes goes away, right? So you have this dynamic with bowheads where they're strongly in demand and then their oil is replaced with petroleum and their baleen is replaced with spring steel. And then there's a real crash in market demand, which is extreme. And the
0: baleen was for corsets.
1: Yes. Yeah. They use them for corsets, a garment. I'm very thankful that I don't have to wear anymore. (laughs) when I think about the relationship I would have had with a whale 150 years ago.
0: Thank God for the capriciousness of capitalist fashion in that, in that case (laughs) actually
1: saved in this case. And so it, it actually has this dynamic that in some cases it, it gives species that had been hunted kind of way in excess of their capacity to reproduce to meet market demand, some room to grow again. Um, and that's certainly the case with with bowheads.
0: The whaling industry boomed again, though, in the 1920s, led by Britain, Norway, Germany, Argentina, and Japan. After, as you write, quote, chemists learned how to separate the molecules that made blubber taste like whale from the molecules that made it caloric so whales became margarine how did this soviet american borderland become an international commons for industrial slaughter and how did the scale of that industrial slaughter differ from that first period of whaling in the mid 19th century
1: so i grew up as as you probably did too with a lot of save the whales um you know posters and Greenpeace flyers, and it was just sort of a, a piece of the culture, which I remember in my early teens, not really understanding, because I also associated whaling with this 19th century tall ship thing, probably because of Moby Dick. And it's like, well, if if this is a 19th century thing, why, why were we talking about saving the whales in the 20th century? And the reason is this kind of technological innovation that originally comes out of Norway and then spreads in kind of Northern Europe um, for much more sophisticated um, industrial whaling fleets that could kill many more species of whales than had been accessible for wooden ships so they can get blue whales and fin whales.
0: And blue whales are enormous. And blue
1: whales are enormous, right? They're the, the largest animal to have lived. Um, and so to kill one is a real project. And then to be able to do anything with the carcass is a whole other project. So these are the, the factory fleets would have many sort of small killer ships and then a central processing facility ship that could sort of pull an entire whale up its gangway and take it to pieces. And they were used um, for margarine. So whale oil went into sort of directly into human food. Um, And then also for all sorts of cosmetic products, Unilever, the big kind of conglomerate that ships shampoo and stuff all over the world now, actually was a- And that
0: bought Ben and Jerry's a few years ago.
1: Right. Yes. Um, kind of a nasty multinational thing. Um, sort of the beginning of that particular conglomerate is with whaling um, and with the products that you can sell from a whale, the lipstick and face cream and all sorts of other things. Um, and this kicks off kind of a, a, just a massive and level of industrial slaughter that the oceans are still recovering from. Um, most of which is done by capitalist countries. So Norway, Germany gets in on it before the Second World War. Great Britain is a major whaling country.
0: The United States
1: really does not have an industrial whaling fleet in the 20th century.
0: Even though it had led the way in the first big whaling boom.
1: Yes. And there's there's always a lot of concern that the U.S. is going to get back in on the whaling business. Um, so they are invited to the kind of big international whaling um, agreements and conventions, um, but they don't really have a lot of ships at sea. Um, it's it's much more of a of a European project, and then Japan get, starts to whale at a large level after the Second World War
0: with U.S. assistance. With U.S.
1: assistance, yeah, it's it's a c- kind of part of the the Marshall Plan for Japan, like a, as a way of building the country back up.
0: Ultimately, it was the Soviet Union that became the leading holdout against whaling restrictions in the second half of the twentieth century. Because the, quote, industrial aspect of industrial capitalist slaughter was not just acceptable, but desirable. How did that shift happen? And how was it that the Soviet Union became at least perceived in this conveniently historically amnesiac way by its critics as this rogue whaling state? And why was the Soviet Union so committed to whaling not only to the industry, but really to the society of the whaling ship as an exemplary space?
1: So Soviet whaling, as a historian, has certain vexing uh, aspects, which is that a lot of the documentation is hard to get your hands on, if not impossible. I think there's there's probably some documents sitting somewhere in Moscow that actually talk about the, the really high-level meetings where people hash through all the ins and outs of why the whaling industry continues. But I think it's pretty clear that it starts in the 1930s and particularly after the Second World War, as a way of providing calories for the Soviet Union. Um, There's a a very small whaling industry. Um, It's almost like a proof of concept in the 1930s that's off of Chukotka. Um, It's mostly providing whales for use in the Soviet Far East. But during the Second World War, the, the commander of the Far Eastern whaling fleet writes to Stalin and says, there is an enormous untapped resource here there's massive quantities of fat in the Pacific ocean and down toward Antarctica. If we just had a whaling fleet, we would be able to provide it. And this is a moment when the Soviet union is, you know, it's fighting Nazi Germany. It's fighting Japan. The, the war is extraordinarily costly in human life. And for kind of all of the industries within the Soviet union to a level that I think Americans sometimes are not even cognizant of. It's just a massive reordering of society Thirty million casualties,
0: and all energy, human and otherwise, going to the front.
1: Yes, like absolutely everything is is going to the front, and that means there's agricultural production is scaled down. Some of the richest agricultural regions are battlefields, so you know, Ukraine is no longer a breadbasket because it's a it's a, you know kind of central to the the conflict with Nazi Germany. So there's a caloric crisis within the country, and whaling looks like one of the ways to get over this. It's like a supply of meat and fat, um, things that are really needed by the Soviet, by the Red Army, um, and by Soviet citizens. And so that's where the kind of really large scale industrial whaling takes off, partly because the Soviet Union captures some German whaling fleets, so it it kind of gets the material. By the 1950s, is floating these really massive. Very technologically sophisticated uh, ships, both in the North Pacific, um, up toward the Bering Strait, and then also uh, down to Antarctica. Um, And one of my my colleagues named Ryan Tucker Jones, I think next year is publishing a book that's about the kind of Antarctic Soviet whaling, um, which is going to be more comprehensive than my two chapters, um, but well, is also trying to kind of unpack this history of how it is and why it is that the Soviet Union keeps going because the whaling in the 20th century is is at excess, right? It's killing millions of whales. That's not an exaggeration. Some species of whales it's pushing very close to extinction. And because whales are becoming more and more scarce, two things happen. First, there is a meeting right after the Second World War that creates the International Whaling Commission, which is trying to prevent the outright extinction of whale species and it is from the beginning a really compromised international body because it has no enforcement power. So the the IWC tries to get all of the whaling countries to the table to to impose limits on their their catches annually. And you know you can guess how well that works in terms of asking industries to regulate themselves. They they keep uh, killing whales in numbers that you know the biologists come to the IWC year after year and say, look, we're We're killing too many. We need to lower the quota on blue whales. We need to kill fewer fin whales. We just need to sort of reduce the industry. And the Soviet Union is part of this from the beginning. And I think one of the things that the Soviets see is that capitalism is completely incapable of self-regulation, right? So they take these kind of demands to rein in socialist whaling very skeptically, because they're like, "Look, you're actually not doing a particularly good job of it yourself. Why? Why should we?" regulate our whaling. And I think in the Far East, the, the Soviet Far East, there was this memory of the uh, the 19th century whaling period, and a memory of the ways in which, you know, capitalists just came in and took everything. And many of the whaling captains came from the Far East. They knew this past. And so there was a sense that, you know, if, if we don't kill these whales, uh, the capitalists will. And this leads to some real uh, kind of distortions in Soviet whaling and that they start killing way outside of the limits that are set by the International Whaling Commission. And if, as insufficient as those limits are, the Soviets are still going beyond them. And they keep whaling later into the 20th century than most of the capitalist uh, countries do other than Japan. I think one way that this is often interpreted is through a lens of kind of capitalist enlightenment that, oh, look, you know, Britain got over their habit of killing whales because, you know, they evolved out of that. I actually think it's probably as much because it became really expensive to launch these whaling fleets and the return on investment kept going down because it was more expensive to kill whales the fewer whales there were at sea. And this is the same time that a lot of those same... Enterprises like Unilever are moving into things like palm oil, rather than whale oil as a substitute for cosmetics. So, you know, that that's the thing that historians can differ about, but I, I tend to be less on the side of it just being some magic enlightenment on the part of these whaling fleets in the 60s. But it also means that by the 70s, when the Soviet Union is this kind of holdout country that's still whaling and whaling regularly, and at that point whaling often very close to the United States because they're, they're going after an, a very diminished whale population, that they um, become the target of Greenpeace activists. And so there's these kind of amazing dramatic standoffs that I can't believe no one has made a movie out of <laughs> uh, between Soviet whaling ships and Greenpeace Activists who will, you know, go put their rubber Zodiac boats, you know, between the pod of sperm whales um, and the Soviet harpoons to try to save the lives of the whales. Um, And also to get really amazing film footage to kind of put out into the world and say, you know, we have to prohibit whaling in all of its forms because look, at this terrible practice.
0: Let's talk about the rise of of Western and American conservationism. It valued nature as something other than a commodity, though though in a very different way than Beringian's. You write, quote, By the late 19th century, not everyone looking at Alaska from Washington, D.C. and New York saw a new frontier. Many saw a mirror of the last one and, as such, a place that might need to be conserved rather than used. Preserving this last frontier required protecting it from the market." A kind of rational use derived not from profit, but from maintaining a final theater for the masculine script of stalking, aiming, killing, and hanging evidence of grit and skill on the wall. How did conservation emerge not as some sort of politics hostile to settler colonial capitalism, but rather for figures like Teddy Roosevelt and Madison Grant, two figures that also I'll note appear in my history of anti-immigrant politics in this country. The, the two things are very much related for them. Uh, but but it's a feature instead of capitalist and white supremacist and imperialist ideology, even though it betrayed an anxiety about the consequences of all of that. How, how did that happen? And, and how did it value walrus and caribou lives in a way that perversely framed them as imperiled by native people rather than the very order that people like Teddy Roosevelt And Madison Grant sat at the top of.
1: Right. I love that that's a piece of overlap between our two books. Um, I feel like Madison Grant, uh, yeah, he just shows up everywhere, mostly for very terrible.
0: Really bad guy.
1: (laughs) um, But I think, unfortunately, quite indicative of of many of the people involved in this moment, early moment in American kind of conservation thinking, which has to do with um, an idea that the American character is forged through a relationship with, you know, what we would now call the frontier, you know, with a kind of a wild landscape and through, through hunting in it. And the vision of hunting that Grant and Roosevelt had in mind is actually one that they inherit from the British aristocracy, um, which is that you go out and you pick a particularly large, usually male animal, um, and you you chase it down and you kill it you know, and you probably do eat some of it, but the real reason is to have a trophy, which is a you know, kind of signal of your capacity as a as a masculine being of the frontier. And the ability to do this in the American West by the later parts of the 19th century is something that people like Roosevelt and Grant are worried about because, you know, the, the, the actual force of settler colonialism has displaced so many of The bison and the bear and the moose and the elk and the other animals that they're really interested in hunting in this way, and leads to, you know, there are authors like Carl Jacoby who go into this in great depth. So I'm doing like a a real gloss here, but leads to the creation of national parks as spaces that are not supposed to have hunting for any kind of commercial or even really subsistence purpose. They are supposed to be spaces without human beings in them for the most part, um, certainly without or white populations, or indigenous people, but places that these animal populations can be preserved in and then occasionally hunted under kind of very strict rules uh, through licensing. And of course, this has some beneficial impact in the sense that it does preserve animal populations in some places, but it also completely ignores any existing local ways of working with, living with, understanding, and using those animals. Um, And in Alaska, particularly to the detriment of native hunters who, um, you know, as I was talking about before with whales, have this way of understanding the animals as, as deeply settled pieces of social life. They're incorporated into human social relationships and they're also critical pieces of people's caloric lives. And the number of caribou that you need to eat if you're living in the Arctic far exceeds the number of caribou you need to kill to prove that you are a masculine uh, practitioner from the frontier. And so there was often enormous amounts of judgment placed on um, indigenous hunters for overkill. Um, and it shows up in in all sorts of records and sort of discussions of this is barbaric. Um, and you can imagine the the deeply racialized language that gets kind of operationalized to say, this way of hunting is uncivilized. It's not really appropriate. If these people would just sort of move into town and get regular jobs, then the animals would be safe. Um,
0: an amazing act of projection.
1: An amazing act of production, yes. <laughs> um, without a lot of self-reflection, I would say, to put it mildly. But it, it leads to the, the passage of a, a game act in Alaska that severely limits the number of walruses that People can kill. Um, And there's actually immediate outcry from native hunters and from missionaries and teachers who are embedded in these communities and saying, you know, this is this is not sufficient. Like people can't live on two walruses a year uh, for a family. That's that's not that's starvation level. So that it replays a piece of the history of American conservation that is actually present through, you know, basically from the Adirondacks all the way west, um, shows up in Alaska. And then it kind of re reappears in the 1970s and the 1980s in this anti-whaling moment, because there's a there's a slippage for many of the Greenpeace activists, and it's a slippage that is very well remembered up north. So if you want to make yourself unpopular, if you go to St. Lawrence Island, say you come from Greenpeace, because um, they they have left a really bitter taste in a lot of these indigenous communities, because in this this period of anti-whaling Activism, they started with it's kind of targeting the Soviet Union and these industrial level whale kills, um, but actually extend it to all whalers everywhere to the point that the International Whaling Commission actually calls a, a moratorium on all whale hunts, um, regardless of who's doing it or for what purpose in the 1980s. It's actually Anupiak on the, the north slope um, in the town that was called Barrow for a while and is now. Returned to its Anubyak uh, name of Utgavik, actually kind of organized politically to push back against the International Whaling Commission's ruling about indigenous whaling. And in part, their argument is: <laughs> we are not responsible for the industrial slaughter that has put these animals in danger. Number one, and number two, the actual number of bowhead whales is sufficient that you know a subsistence harvest in the Arctic is not going to endanger them at all. And the Inupiaq actually invite some marine biologists in to kind of get uh, outside confirmation from Western scientists that the bowhead numbers are are robust um, and it works. And so actually the International Whaling Commission ends up reversing its, its ruling on this. And now native whalers on both sides of the Bering Strait have quotas every year for gray and bowhead whales, uh, numbers of whales that they can strike and kill. Um, and so it has kind of returned to being a, a regular subsistence practice after this brief period of, of being outlawed.
0: You write, quote, Where the market measured success in general growth and tolerated abandoning species and places and people when desires shifted, the plan expected each person in every farm to show increase. The American Yupik and Soviet Yupik spoke dialects of the same language, ate the same succulent plants soaked in the same seal oil, looked for the same birds signaling spring. But in their respective villages, their missionaries now preached different kingdoms coming, amid economies that set different measures of value. In Chaplano, the Kolhos took any walruses or foxes killed in exchange for supplies, even if those supplies were more likely to be posters of Stalin than sugar. In Gamble, the store had more sugar and no Stalin, but valued walruses and foxes erratically. Lived communism was consistent, if often insufficient. Lived capitalism often bounteous, but capricious. But then, quote, The collapse of the Soviet Union ended salaries for herders, along with fuel for helicopters and vishoods, veterinary care, and imported food. The regularity of Soviet life was an Arctic aberration, one the Chukchi first had to adapt to living with, then without. At the end, one reindeer specialist wrote, of yet another branch of human civilization. So it seems like ultimately we wound up in one world that shares kind of universally in common this state of both capriciousness and insufficiency. How did all roads lead to the same place?
1: So I think that this kind of convergence with what is now the Russian Federation and the United States is partly due to the ways in which both countries tend to pay attention to and incorporate and provide services to um, their very far northern peripheries, mostly when there is some sort of resource there to be extracted. And this is a dynamic that you can see kind of play over and over again in the American Arctic that there's sort of a, a buildup of, of people and policing and the presence of of the market and efforts to control the market that start with whaling and then kind of fade out and then boom again with the gold rush and then fade out um, and then are a, a major piece um, if you're further um, kind of further inland with the oil boom after the discovery of oil in Prudhoe Bay and It's certainly something that people who live in Alaska talk about, right, that you get these boom and bust cycles and that what the Soviet Union did is kind of try to flatten that out. Um, And that was part of the ethical commitment to making people equal was to not have their source of basic material subsistence be something that could just disappear. So the state would would provide a salary for reindeer herding, even if there was no demand for the reindeer that were being herded. And then when that disappears in the, the 1990s with the collapse of the Soviet Union, Chukotka goes through a period that when people talk about it now, they talk about it in in ways that are not dissimilar to some of the really difficult parts of the Soviet project, in that it was you know, a moment of incredible and shocking and deep a poverty. The, the kind of infrastructure of the Soviet state disappears over a couple of years. There's no fuel being sent in. There's no food coming in. Um, electricity shuts down and people kind of tough it out um, and are now kind of in an analogous position to what has been the norm on the American side, which is there's a great deal of attention paid to certain places. Um, Chukotka is, you know, one of the major gold production regions for the Russian Federation now. So there are towns that, you know, have an influx of workers and infrastructure because of that. And there are other kinds of places where industry brings attention, and then there are these places that are sort of forgotten. And I think it's a dynamic that is likely to intensify and potentially intensify in in ways that look really familiar to this pattern as the sea ice becomes less prevalent. um, The the ability to ship goods from uh, Asia to Europe via the Northeast Passage, uh, the Great Northern Sea Route uh, north of Russia is going to be possible in the summer in a couple of years, basically, maybe a decade. And with all of that new shipping traffic, that means there will be port cities all the way along the kind of Russian north that will will see this kind of influx of um, investment infrastructure, uh, lots of people, lots of population churn. And that's also going to mean that other parts of the north remain forgotten.
0: You write, quote, with or without people, there is no one moment when this land and sea existed in some pure, unchanging balance. Yet this land and sea are also in the process of ceasing to exist in the form we knew in the past. What global warming shows, in other words, is that there's no place where, where deep environmental harm can be permanently displaced away to. Because burnt-up fossil fuels send greenhouse gases into one big shared global atmosphere that we all live under, and you write, quote, Beringian land is always changing, but it is hard to change. But, quote, it is hard to change the tundra, but not impossible. As the 21st century crawls on, humans' aggregate but uneven lust for energy saturates the globe with levels of carbon not seen since long before Rangifer, or people, existed. In other words, is now changing along with the rest of the world, in part because of oil extracted from Alaska. What have you learned about the history of human relationships to the earth from your your work in Beringia that might help us think about how to disrupt this fossil-fueled conveyor belt towards climate catastrophe that the entirety of humanity is currently strapped to?
1: This is the question that keeps me up at night. Me too. <laughs> I, I hope there's something to be learned, because um, otherwise, why am I doing this? And it's it's something I talk about with my students all the time. Since I think, it, as acutely, or perhaps even more acutely than I do, people in their late teens and twenties uh, sort of understand the future to be this just you know this thing that we have very little time to try to make the best of. I think a couple of things about this particular history. I don't know if hope is the right word because I think hope is often quite trite and is disaggregated from things like taking actual action and being responsible, but in a perhaps more practical sense are models of the fact that we are not doomed to a single way of conducting ourselves that is completely wedded to this fossil fuel conveyor belt, as you put it. I think one of those is that if nothing else, this book is a, I think I say this in the introduction, it's kind of a, it's a set of vocabularies or possibilities for ways in which people have understood their relationship to nature that are not fixed. Capitalism isn't some inevitable thing that has always existed there and has dominated people's lives forever and ever. It's actually in a historical terms, it's, um, it's an aberration. It's a, it's a recent thing. It's not the norm. And therefore there are other ways of, of doing business. And secondly, that, and this is the thing that I find endlessly fascinating about Russian history is that it actually is possible to dramatically change the way that people understand the role of the government and the demands that they can make of it and its ethical role in their lives. And, you know, say what you want to about the, the, <laughs> the terrible things that come after the Bolshevik revolution, but it was actually a moment when, you know, if you look at at the Russian citizenry that I actually don't pay a lot of attention to in this book um, because they live very much further to the West um, and they live in cities and they are the kind of educated, literate elite. But, you know, those, those folks were looking around their world at the turn of the 20th century and saying the way that we are living now cannot continue. It is, um, it is so antithetical to life. It is not supportive of just being human beings in a, in a practical sense because it's, you know, Russia was a country with a great deal of of poverty. And it's not possible in a moral sense, because look at the way we're treating each other. You know, it changed, right? It was, it actually got to the point where it was so antithetical to life that there was a revolution. And people can debate, you know, whether or not the revolution contained continuity from the czarist period or not. um, And it, it will go on and on. But Certainly the vision of that group of kind of committed Bolsheviks was that it is in fact possible to decide that we as a, as a collective need to try to live differently in order to sustain life. And they weren't thinking in environmental terms, but they were thinking in ethical terms. Um, and they were thinking about what justice would look like. And I think in the 21st century, it's pretty hard to think about the environment without thinking about justice And therefore, perhaps there is an opening for a a kind of thinking that it can be more inclusive of things that aren't people, of understanding ecosystems as part of our politics, not as what politics act on, but that also really has this this core of justice at its its forefront, as the other option is antithetical to existing. Um, It's hostile to life. And I think that the the experience I've had talking about this book with people has been inspiring in the sense that there is such an appetite for trying to think that way that you know people are are looking for models and vocabularies and uh, senses of possibility rather than this kind of end of history. We're all just stuck in twenty first century capitalism, late capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, right? That this is all there is. Um, the people are looking for that, that exit and that sense that there are um, kind of flourishing possibilities for ways of thinking that exist outside this and have survived it and therefore can perhaps outlive it.
0: Well, Bathsheba DeMuth, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Dan.
0: Ashiba DeMuth is a professor of history and of environment and society at Brown University. Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait, is out now in paperback from W.W. Norton. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that capitalist production only develops the technique and the degree of combination of the social process of production by simultaneously undermining the original sources of all wealth, the soil, and the worker. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Giving us nice ratings and reviews helps introduce us to new listeners. But what really truly does that is you telling other people about the show and why they should listen to it. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and going strong. Even a few bucks is huge.